you guys let me know when it was time to start this time around. Having a conversation over here, and all of a sudden started getting really quiet. All right, man, welcome. It's it's good to be with you guys. Um, this is your first time here. Uh, my name is Garrison, and uh, I'm the pastor here at Veritas State, and we're really glad that you're here. Um, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Galatians 1, we're going to be looking at one verse, one particular verse, verse 10, continuing in our series in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Uh, next Sunday is Easter, uh, and so we're going to take a little uh, break from Galatians to, to look at 1 Corinthians 15, and, and uh, we're going to look at the, the resurrection, celebrate the resurrection of, of Jesus. So we're very excited about that. Uh, if you want to, invite a friend that doesn't know Jesus. Uh, the, the gospel will be preached, and, and we will celebrate the resurrection of our Lord just like we do every single Sunday. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, white Bibles on the bench, white paperback Bibles on the bench, grab one of those. Um, and, and, and if you don't have that, uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can take that one home with you. Turn to page 565 for Galatians 1. Um, really quickly, I, I should probably just mention this explicitly. It's always mentioned in the, in the announcements, but whenever I say something uh, right before the sermon, people tend to pay attention to it a little bit more closely, I think. Uh, so we have a new online giving portal. So if you give uh, online or if you have set up recurring giving in the past, you'll want to uh, reset that up, change your bookmarks, all those sorts of things, if, if that's uh, the means through which you uh, give to Veritas. Um, it's, it's, you can just go to our website, to the giving page on our website to find that. It's really simple and easy. Uh, the process is actually much more simple now, um, so that will be good. Um, all right, let's get started. Galatians 1.10, if you want to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And we're actually going to just read, uh, beginning at verse 6, to just kind of get a, somewhat of an idea of what's going on here in the passage. Galatians 1, 6 through 10, particularly focusing on verse 10. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I um, tremble at this text before us now, and I tremble at the thought of anyone thinking that because I'm up here preaching this particular text and talking about the the issue of fear of man and people-pleasing, that anyone would think that I have got this all figured out and I don't struggle with this myself. Lord, you know my heart. 
you know, the hearts of each and every single person here. And so would you pierce our hearts with the truth of the gospel now? Would you draw us to repentance, grant repentance, deepen our trust in you? And would you help us to turn away from the, the sin and idolatry of people-pleasing and become faithful servants of Christ? We need you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. Um, so originally, we had not planned to stop at this particular verse in the sermon series. Uh, we, we were in Galatians 1, 6 through 9 last week, and uh, this upcoming week, or not this upcoming week, the, the next time we're in Galatians and two Sundays from now, we were, we're going to look at uh, Galatians 1, 10 through 2, 10, and we were, uh, we were going to just include verse 10 in that kind of unit uh, that we were preaching from, but just from a series of conversations I've had uh, in, in the past several weeks uh, with folks in this church body about the, the struggles of, of uh, fear of man and, and, and people pleasing, I sense that the Spirit would, would lead us to just kind of stop here for a moment um, and, and just see what he has to say to us from this particular verse. And, and I'm, I'm so glad that we did because I, I needed to be in this text this week. I needed to hear from God in this text this week. Now, um, if you've been around much the last couple of weeks, uh, you'll know that uh, the reformer, Martin Luther, uh, is one of our companions as we journey through Paul's letter to the Galatians here. Uh, and I thought it might be good for us to know a little bit about this man. Uh, Luther was an Augustinian monk, and uh, monks are kind of intense, right? Uh, but Luther, like, was super intense. Luther was the monk of monks. Uh, he was a monk's monk. In fact, one time uh, Luther said that if anyone could have been saved by his monkery, it was him. Uh, uh, but, but instead of resting assured of his salvation through monkery, he was, he was terrified of God's judgment and of God's righteousness and justice. Uh, and to ease his fears, he, he tried everything. He tried everything. He fasted and fasted for days at a time. He, he would confess his sins in the confessional for, for six hours and then come out of the confessional and then waltz right back in to confess sins that he had forgot to confess. Uh, he, he would spend nights sleeping in the cold and in the freezing weather without blankets in order to appease God through his own suffering. He would pray and pray and pray, but still he could never have the peace and assurance of God's forgiveness in his life. And the particular man overseeing him was getting so tired of dealing with all of this, uh, being stuck in the confessional for hours at a time was getting exhausting for him and the other priests. And so he sent Luther to seminary where Luther would learn about the Bible. Uh, he thought it would be good for Luther. And so it was at seminary, Luther studied the Bible. And then he ended up teaching the Bible at a college in Wittenberg, Germany. And there he lectured on the Psalms and on Romans and on Galatians here. And as he was doing that, the gospel became clearer and clearer to him. And eventually it was as clear as day to him. He saw it so clearly. Uh, his words describing the, this gospel awakening, awakening in his life was, was vivid. He, he said that he felt like he had been born again and walked straight into paradise when he understood the gospel and understood that he was declared righteous through faith alone. He, he saw in the scriptures 
that those who are justified and put in right standing with God don't do anything to earn it or deserve it through monkery or anything else, but rather they're given the gift of justification and right standing with God by grace alone, through faith alone. There's nothing you can do to earn it or deserve it. You simply receive it as a gift. And this message was in direct opposition to the church of his day, which meant that Luther had challenged the authority of the church. Uh, This became particularly contentious in one area. Luther, he's well known uh, for his position on indulgences. Uh, Then and and still today, the Roman Catholic Church would raise money by selling perceived, uh, what's perceived as divine favors. If you give money to the church, you would in return be given the church's word that either a close relative or yourself, that you would be given time off of your uh, time in purgatory. And these, they call these favors indulgences. And this, uh, in Luther's mind, this violated the doctrine of justification through faith alone, as Luther had come to understand it. And so Luther responded. He responded, and and he posted what's called the 95 Theses uh, to the church door in Wittenberg, where he lived. And these theses, along with a number of other books and pamphlets written by Luther, they, they put him at odds with the Roman Catholic Church, which was the most powerful institution of his day. And because of this, he was in constant Danger. They were burning his books and threatening to burn him at the stake. And in that time, Luther faced a number of debates and, and trials, but his final trial, uh, before being excommunicated from Rome, was called the Diet of Worms. Uh, that doesn't mean that Luther had to eat worms. It, it was, uh, it, diet means meeting, and worms was the city that the meeting was in. Uh, and so he, he, he went to the Diet of Worms in April 16, 1521, and Luther shows up to the Diet of Worms, and he enters this room, and there are all his books laid out on a table. And this man, John Eck, asked Luther two questions. He, first, he asked, are these your writings? And Luther answered in the affirmative. And then they asked him, do you recant? Do you, do you withdraw what you've said in them? Do you denounce what you've said in these writings? And it's as if at that moment, Luther had a decision to make. Would he fear God or would he fear man? Would he seek to please man or be a servant of Christ? And he, he trembled while standing at these crossroads. And so th- these words stuttered out of his mouth in a whisper. He said, to say too much or too little would be dangerous. I beg of you, give me time to consider. And so they gave him 24 hours and so he took those 24 hours, he went home, he, he prayed, he, he, he uh, prayed in anguish and thought in anguish over whether he should stand firm or recant. I mean, he faced uh, punishment, he faced arrest and imprisonment, possibly even death. And so he thought and thought and prayed and prayed. And when he returned the next day, they asked him again if he would recant. And this is what he said. Listen to these words. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures... Or by evident reason, for I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves. I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis, my foundation. My conscience is captive to the Word of God, thus I cannot and will not recant." Because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. That's what he said. But he could have just as easily said this. Am I now seeking the approval of man 
or of God? Or am I trying to please man? For if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. He could have just as easily said that. You see, because Luther knew that had he recanted and withdrawn his belief in justification through faith alone out of fear of man, and had he uh, not stood on his conviction of the scriptures as the final authority as on all matters of faith and practice out of a desire to please man, then he would not be faithfully living in his identity as a servant of Christ. Because listen, people-pleasing and being a servant of Christ are antithetical. They're antithetical. These two things directly oppose one another. We can't, at the same time, be enslaved to what others think about us and be faithful servants of Christ. We can't, at the same time, be constantly concerned with and fearful of others' opinions and be faithful servants of Christ. We cannot be ultimately concerned with whether or not people approve of us and at the same time be faithful servants of Christ. That's what Luther knew, and that's what the Apostle Paul is communicating here in Galatians 1.10. This is why we're going to look at this morning how we must put to death the sin of people-pleasing and live in freedom as servants of Christ. We must put to death the sin of people-pleasing and live in freedom as servants of Christ. And we'll discuss that in two stages. Number one, people-pleasing. And number two, the servant of Christ. People-pleasing and the servant of Christ. First, people-pleasing. Now, verse 10 is a transitional verse. It doesn't really solely belong to verses 6 to 9, uh, which make up a kind of unit, and it doesn't really belong to verses uh, 1, 11 through 2, 10, which make up another unit. Uh, so it doesn't really belong to either, but it sort of belongs to both. It's a transitional verse. Uh, and, and Verses 6 to 9 of chapter 1, Paul says that the Judaizers are preaching a false gospel, that the Galatians are believing a false gospel, and that anyone who preaches or believes a false gospel is to be accursed, they're to be damned, condemned to hell. And then in verse 10, he goes, so Galatians, do do you think that I'm trying to please man right now? I, I just said that these Judaizers can go to hell. Do you really think that I'm trying to please man? Do you really think that? The obvious answer is, of course not. The Apostle Paul is a servant, or quite literally, a slave of Christ. And this lets us in a little bit more on some of the -the behind-the-scenes issues going on in in the churches in Galatia here. Uh, We discussed how Paul planted these churches, and we discussed uh, how the Judaizers had come in and begun to, to preach a false gospel to them. And now, apparently, these Judaizers... Uh, ended up telling the Galatian churches that Paul didn't tell them about this circumcision stuff because he was a people pleaser. They, they said it was because he wanted so badly to convince the Galatians and, and win them over and tickle their ears with this message that he left out this part about circumcision. Uh, apparently, they told the Galatians that the Apostle Paul was hoping to avoid persecution and to gain widespread approval by preaching a message of justification by faith alone. And so this accusation, to this accusation, Paul responds like this, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So interestingly here, though, Paul doesn't claim that he's never been a people pleaser. Uh, That's why he says, if I were still trying to please man. Uh, There was a time in Paul's life, apparently, where he sought the glory that comes from men over the glory of God. And coincidentally, it was a time that he had more in common with the Judaizers, theologically speaking, uh, than he does at this point. It was when Paul was a Pharisee. 
Okay, so, so we discussed on the first Sunday of the series Paul's story and how he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee, someone who was utterly zealous to keep God's laws laid out in the Old Covenant. And, and in John 5.44, Jesus says that a distinguishing mark of the Pharisees in his day is that they sought the glory that comes from men rather than the glory that comes from God. They loved the glory that comes from men more than they loved the glory that comes from God. So the Pharisees put on this religious front and they worked really, really hard to have a certain kind of reputation amongst the people of Israel. And, and, and before Paul was wrecked by God's grace on the road to Damascus, before he became a servant of Christ, this was his life. This was his life. Before his conversion, Paul sought the glory that comes from men rather than seeking the glory that comes from God. And I think if we're honest, all of us can identify with that. Ed Welch wrote a, uh, a, a little book some time ago called When People Are Big and God is Small. Uh, and I got to spend some time in this book for the first time uh, this last week, and I'd highly recommend you read it. It's very good. Uh, because one of the things I realized as I was reading portions of it is that we live in a time and place where this is very much the case, where people are big and God is small. God is an afterthought, if he's thought of at all. People are, are big. God is small. People are big. We live in a time where, where we have little quaint, ludicrous sayings like image is everything. And, and, and we, we have these social media where we're, we're constantly building platforms and building personas and, and we're obsessed with, with self-esteem and being affirmed by others. But let's get personal here for a moment. This is, this is not a problem out there. This is a problem in here. This is a problem in this room with us in our hearts Those of us who have confessed Jesus as Lord and are avowed worshipers of him alone are often controlled by, we often trust in, we, we often are, are mastered by, we ultimately worship people. And sometimes this sort of thing can be hard to identify. You can suffer from a crippling case of, of people-pleasing and, and fear of man, while at the same time coming off as just someone who's really nice and happy to serve because you're a Christian. Churches are, are greeting ground, greet, how do I say this? Churches are breeding grounds for this kind of thing. It's, it's nice to be nice. It's, it's nice to, it's good to serve. But we do so out of an insatiable desire to have people's approval. That's, that's idolatry. That's idolatry. And it so easily slips under the radar because it often just comes off as I'm a nice Christian who likes to serve a lot. So what are some ways we can identify this if it slips under the radar so easily? What are some ways that we can spot people pleasing in our own lives? Well, I just mentioned Ed Welch's book, When People Are Big and God is Small. And in that book, he lists out a number of ways that you can spot this. And they're all really good, uh, but I'll just read a few of them. The first one, have you ever struggled with peer pressure? Uh, peer pressure is simply another way of saying fear of man or people-pleasing. If you experienced it when you were younger, it's likely still there. It may be submerged and revealed in more adult ways, or it may be camouflaged by your impressive resume and perceived success. Secondly, are you overcommitted? Do you have an incessant and compulsive need 
to please others? Do you have an incessant and compulsive need to not disappoint others so that you never say the simple two-letter word no and you just are, are piled with things to do, events to go to, people to impress? Are you constantly saying yes to things and overcommitting yourself? Do you need something from your spouse? Third, do you need something from your spouse? Do you need your spouse to listen to you, to respect you? Welch says, think carefully here. Certainly God is pleased when spouses have good communication and mutual honor. But for many people, the desire for things has roots in something that is far from God's design for his image bearers. Unless you understand the biblical parameters of marital commitment, your spouse will become the one you fear. Your spouse will control you. Your spouse will quietly take the place of God in your life. Fourth, do you ever feel as if you might be exposed as an imposter? This means that the opinions of other people, especially their possible opinions of your failure, are able to control you. Fifth, and this one really hit home for me, are you always second-guessing decisions based on what other people might think? Are you afraid of making mistakes that will make you look bad in other people's eyes? Six, do you feel empty or meaningless? Do you experience an insatiable hunger for love and affection for other, from others? If you need others to fill you, you're being controlled by them. I'll do just a couple more. Seven, do other people often make you angry or depressed? Are they making you crazy? If so, they're probably controlling your life. And then lastly, this, this one's just one word, evangelism. Are you ever too timid to share your faith in Christ because you're afraid others will think you an irrational fool? Now listen to me. All of these things that we just discussed here are dangerous. And they're not just dangerous because it's not healthy for you emotionally and mentally to be a people pleaser. The, the, the root, it's dangerous because the root cause of all of this sort of behavior is idolatry. It's dangerous. The root cause of all of those issues is that you've either put yourself in the place of God so that you want glory for yourself, you want the honor and praise from others for yourself, or it's that you've elevated others to the place of God in your life. But either way, whatever it is that controls you, whatever it is that you are dependent upon, whatever it is that fills your mind, that is your God. That's what you're worshiping. And so we must put to death the sin, the idolatry of people-pleasing. Not, not just for our, our mental and emotional health, but because it's idolatry, and idolatry sends people to hell. But how do we do that? How do we put to death the sin of people-pleasing in our lives? I love what the Apostle Paul says here in this last sentence. So we'll just read it again. We've already read it. Verse 10. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You see it. 
he says that people-pleasing and being a servant of Christ are antithetical to one another. People-pleasing and being a servant of Christ are mutually exclusive. People-pleasing is slavery. And the way to put to death the people-pleaser in you is by taking on the freedom of slavery to Christ. So, so listen, because often what you hear uh, about the solution to people-pleasing is, is to be more confident and to, and to work on your self-esteem, you know, obtain self-esteem or, or to be your own person and all of that. But here the Apostle Paul seems to think that the antidote to the idolatry of people-pleasing is not being a rugged or independent individualist. The antidote to the idolatry of people-pleasing is being a servant of Christ. The antidote to being uh, enslaved to others' opinions is taking on the chains of slavery to Christ. So secondly, our second point, servant, the servant of Christ. What does it mean to be a servant of Christ? What does the Apostle Paul mean here when he says that he is a servant of Christ? What he means is that in everything, he is subordinate to and subject to Jesus Christ. It, it, it means that Jesus is his master and that Jesus sets the parameters of his obedience. In other words, what it means is that with all that he is, he pursues faithfulness to Jesus Christ. He is a bondservant, a slave to Jesus Christ. He gives him his utter obedience now, I know some of you may be thinking, why are we talking about being servants? I thought the point of Paul's letter to the Galatians was freedom, free salvation, free justification, free, free adoption by God, freedom and the spirit from slavery to sin and the law. And it is, it is that. In fact, Paul's letter to the Galatians has often been referred to in the past as the, 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 the charter of Christian freedom. It's, it's all about Christian freedom. And so you might be wondering, if, if we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, not by anything we've done, then why on earth are we talking about being servants or slaves of Christ? Why would we be talking about obeying Christ at all costs? Why would we be talking about being a slave of Christ? Why would we be talking about obedience if salvation is free? Why would we talk, why should we be baptized if salvation is is free. Why should we love our neighbor if salvation is free? Why should we make disciples and share the gospel if salvation is free? Why obey if it's all free? If you're wondering that, I would say two things to you. Firstly, you, you get it, but you don't get it. Firstly, you, you, you get that we're saved by grace alone, that there's nothing on earth that we can do to earn it or deserve it, but you don't get how costly that was. Because that free salvation, that free justification that God gives to you as a gift and that there's nothing you can do to earn it or deserve it, that free salvation was costly. It cost Christ the shedding of his own blood. It cost Christ torture and crucifixion. It cost him having nails driven through his hands and his feet. It cost him having a crown of thorns pressed into his skull. It cost him having a, a spear stabbed into his heart and being killed, murdered. It cost him his life. That salvation that's free for you was costly to him. And I just don't know why you wouldn't want to be obedient to someone like that. 
I just don't know why you wouldn't gladly take on the chains of slavery in him. I just don't know why you wouldn't hang on his every single word. I don't know why you would not want to follow a master like that. How could you not seek to obey him and live for his pleasure when he purchased your salvation that was so costly to him? How could you not seek to live for his pleasure when you see what a merciful master he is? And he is a merciful master. And when you see that, you gladly take on servitude to him. When you see how merciful he is, his his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Remember a story of when John Bunyan was in prison for, for preaching the gospel without being a licensed minister in England. And uh, he was in prison with some Anabaptists there. And these Anabaptists said to, to Bunyan, Pastor Bunyan, you, you cannot tell people that they're saved by grace alone because then they'll do whatever they want. To which he responded, my dear brothers, if I tell people that they're saved by God's grace alone, then they'll do whatever God wants. If I tell people that they're saved by God's grace alone, then they'll do whatever God wants. Gladly take on the chains of slavery to Christ because he's such a merciful master. That's true freedom, having Christ as your master. Secondly, I would say to you, if if, if you're wondering why we're even talking about this, I would say you don't understand freedom. Uh, You don't understand freedom. For those who were born and bred in the the good old U.S. of A., we we tend to think of freedom in a way that is as American as apple pie. We we tend to think of freedom as uh, being without any and all restriction, no boundaries, no one telling me what to do. That's not true freedom. And we've, we've talked about this a number of times, and this will not be the last one. We'll come back to this probably over and over again. But freedom does not come by serving nothing or no one at all, but by serving the right thing, serving the right person, particularly Jesus. And in all reality, serving no one or nothing at all is not even possible. It's not even possible to do that. We're all made in the image of God to live toward something. We're, we're all made in the image of God to serve something ultimate, to give our lives to something. To, we, we hunger for this. We dream for it. We, we, we spend billions of dollars at the movies every single year to, to be inspired by it. We all live in order to, to serve something ultimate. And theologian Bob Dylan captures this reality poetically. He wrote a song called, You Have to Serve Somebody. You're going to have to serve somebody. This is what he said, one particular verse. You may be a construction worker working on a home. You may be living in a mansion, or you might live in a dome. You might own guns. You might even own tanks. You might be somebody's landlord. You might even own banks. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, and it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You're going to have to serve somebody. And I'm telling you right now that there's no one more worthy, no one more wonderful, no one more beautiful than Jesus. There's no one more deserving than, than him. There's no master more merciful. There's no savior more stunning. There's no Lord more laudable than Jesus. He alone is worthy of being our master and Lord. 
But listen, serving him also doesn't come without cost. It costs. As we come nearer to closing, let me just share with you two things you can expect as a servant of Christ. First, you can expect confrontation. Uh, I mean, the entire book of Galatians is actually testimony to this fact. The Apostle Paul, as a faithful servant of Christ, is, is facing opposition and confrontation from the Judaizers here, from the, from the Galatians, the very churches that he planted. He's facing confrontation. But look at Galatians 2, specifically in, in verses 11 through 14. We see a, a specific example of this. Paul writes, But when Cephas, that's Peter the Apostle, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. That's the Judaizers. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas, Paul's companion, was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And so few things are as harmful to the church as hypocrisy. When we Christians make a habit of saying one thing and then doing another thing, denying with our lives what we confess with our mouths, we do serious damage to our community of faith. And we see this sort of thing happening here in Galatians 2, 11 through 14. And so Paul knew that if we don't lovingly confront those who fall into hypocrisy such as this, this can just spread like cancer throughout the community. So Paul calls him out. He calls Peter out for his sin, and he does so even publicly because his sin was so public and causing disruption in the community. And he did so because he was a faithful servant of Christ. Faithful servants of Christ can expect to deal with confrontation like this in their lives. People-pleasers don't confront People-pleasers don't do confrontation. People-pleasers ignore the issue and just sweep it under the rug and just count on it going away. People-pleasers are are more concerned with others being displeased with them than they are faithfulness to Jesus. And how easy it would have been for the Apostle Paul to just let it slide, to ignore it rather than risk being alienated from the rest of the church. Yet, If he would have done so, he would have been a people pleaser and not a servant of Christ. Servants of Christ will inevitably face confrontation. Secondly, another thing you can expect as a servant of Christ, expect to be shamed. Expect to be shamed. I hesitated to share this part because I, I don't think that Christians in the U.S. are at all persecuted. And to, to even say that we are simply not true. How, how shameful it is for us to say something like that when we see things like what we saw in Egypt this morning take place. Yet I think it's necessary to do so because, honestly, my hope is for some of you to hear the call to do missions and unreached people groups where you face a very real possibility, where people are hostile to the faith, where you face a very real possibility 
of being persecuted. And the reality is, there's always a possibility for us Christians to face persecution no matter where we are. We're not guaranteed an easy life. We're not promised an easy life, whether it's in the U.S. or or anywhere else. And then even still, even though we're not persecuted here in the U.S., there's still, often people are shamed and made fun of. So expect to be shamed. Look at verse 511 of Galatians. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. So if you're a servant of Christ, rather than a people pleaser, you will talk about the cross of Christ with others. And if you talk about the cross of Christ with others, you will undoubtedly at some point be shamed by them. In this particular situation, as a servant of Christ, Paul preached a gospel that didn't require circumcision for salvation. And this, this made his, his fellow Jews angry. They, they, they took out their frustration on Paul. He suffered. He was driven out of synagogues. He was stoned and beaten and cursed. This is why in closing in Galatians 6.17, he said, Let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Christ Jesus. He had scars from the beatings he took from preaching the cross. But the Judaizers here in Galatia, they were seeking to remove the offense of the cross in order to avoid the shame of preaching the cross because they were people pleasers. Look at verse 6, 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. And so they're simply, they're, they're seeking to keep up appearances and avoid being shamed for the cross. That's, that's people-pleasing. And so Paul could have done the same. He could have avoided the persecution and the beatings and the mockery if he would only add a little bit to the gospel, if he would only say that Jesus is not completely sufficient and that people need to add to his work for, thou salvation, for their salvation, then he won't be persecuted. He won't be shamed But because he's a servant of Christ, he won't do it. He refuses to do it. And no doubt we face similar temptations today. Maybe if we take out the part about being depraved sinners and totally unable to to add an iota to our salvation in Christ and that we stand condemned apart from Christ, we won't be shamed. We won't be more accepted. We won't offend Or maybe if we take out that bit about Jesus being the only way to reconciliation to God and salvation. Or maybe if we take out the bit about judgment on the last day, if we take these things out, we could avoid the shame of the cross. We wouldn't be seen as ignorant or backwards or crazy. We wouldn't be shamed. If we took those things out, people wouldn't be offended. To quote the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, Woe to us if we do not preach the gospel out of a desire to please others. Woe to us, because then we're not servants of Christ. I want to add a little caveat to those two things, those two expectations. This doesn't mean that you're a major jerk, okay? It doesn't, you don't need to be needlessly offensive. You should not be a major jerk. Jerk. You should 
seek to remove all the offenses that are not necessary to be there for the sake of the gospel and the word of God. And you should not be a major jerk. You, 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 you should be kind and gentle and, and patient and charitable in the way that you confront hypocrisy and, and share the gospel. You should do so out of a desire to love others and care for them, not because you're doctrine police and not because you're like the Christian Thor who smashes heretics with your hammer. Gentleness, patience, kindness. These are the fruit of the Spirit. Be gentle, be patient, be kind with others. But don't shy away from necessary confrontation. And don't shy away from the shame of the cross. These are inevitable for the servant of Christ. And they're uncomfortable and they're costly, but the joy far outweighs the cost. The joy outweighs the cost because of what is gained. Christ is gained. He is gained. And once you've feasted on the delights of living for Christ's pleasure, then, then, then you'll start to lose a taste for the scraps of people-pleasing. You, you won't even care for the slop of people-pleasing anymore. Pe- the slop of people-pleasing becomes far less appetizing when you feast on the banquet of being a servant of Christ. Because it's Christ that takes all of our judgments against us and he nails them to the cross and he nails them there forever. All the judgments, all the shame, all the harsh words spoken against you are nailed to the tree. And most importantly, God's judgment of us is nailed to that tree. And his judgment is the only one that really matters. And his judgment of you, if you are in Christ, is well done, my good and faithful servant. You are righteous in the sight of God if you are in Christ Jesus. He's declared you to be so. And his judgment is the only one that matters. And so, because of this, we we seek to be good and faithful servants of Christ. Because we already stand as righteous and, and just before his throne. Not at all because of what we've done, but because of the cross of Christ. And in him, in him alone, we're empowered to put to death the people pleaser in us and live as servants of Christ by resting in him and trusting that God is for us in him. Let's pray together.